kings and prophets. Sounds dramatic enough. What an amazing party we had last Sunday. We ate, we played, we skated, and we fell. Okay, it was so fun. Uh, and before we dive in, I just want to mention two spiritually significant opportunities right now. Small groups start today. In case some started this past week, there are several choices, but I want to highlight two of them. The first one is Starting Point, and this one is Coed, and it really aligns with the heartbeat of our church, a place where faith and doubt collide, a place where there's good answers, but there's even better questions. Okay, it's gonna be great. The group starts tonight at 6 p.m. You can sign up on our app or on our website. The second group I wanna highlight also starts tonight. If you are a woman, okay, so half of you fit that description, and if you are a woman and you're older than 55 or have been widows, we have an amazing group that starts tonight at 5.30. Some of my favorite people in the world are in this group. I wish I was a 55-year-old woman so that I could attend this group. And so it's also on the app. Uh, if you can't find it on the app, technology's not your thing, uh, talk to one of our staff and we will hook you up. Okay, so that's the first spiritually significant thing that's happening, the opportunity, small groups. The second is baptism. Next week, we're gonna have a trough of water on our stage and people are gonna get baptized and it is going to be amazing. If you have never been baptized and you are ready to proclaim your love for Jesus, let us know. I truly believe that baptism is a significant spiritual marker in our lives and we can't wait. Today, we start a brand new sermon series called Of Kings and Prophets and we're going to be exploring some of the main characters found in the books of First and Second Kings. Now, I think it's helpful that as we begin to study these passages, uh, it's helpful to look at when and where these events take place in the history of Israel. And so here is 60 seconds of context, okay? We're gonna bring you all the way up from Genesis to 1 Kings. God makes a covenant with Abraham. And Father Abraham has many sons. And those sons become a large Hebrew tribe that are eventually enslaved in Egypt. And God raises up Moses to deliver them, to liberate the slaves. He gives Moses the law and he warns them about becoming like other nations. Moses dies and Joshua takes the promised land, but there's no successor to Joshua. So God raises up judges to lead and govern the people. But eventually they're like, God, give us a king. We wanna be like everyone else. And God acquiesces. He gives them Saul, the picture perfect king, at least on paper. Saul is replaced by David, who is mostly a great king in Israel's history. And at the end of his life, who is going to be king after David? This is where the book of 1 Kings begins. It answers the question, who will succeed David as king? And the answer is Solomon. And if you're following along on our sermon notes on the Prodigal app, you already knew that. Solomon is mentioned 294 times in the Old Testament and 12 times in the New. He's a big character within the scriptures. He's a bit of a puzzling man. He was a wise man who did some foolish things. And we can learn a lot from King Solomon. Uh, he authored many chapters of the Bible, lots of Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes. And there's this pivotal moment early on in the reign of Solomon. And it's found in 1 Kings 3, verse 5, it says this, The Lord appeared to Solomon 
during the night in a dream. And God said, ask whatever you want me to give you. And now to quote the Beach Boys, wouldn't it be nice, right? Like I would love for the Lord to say, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you, okay? The Chiefs are gonna play Tom Brady tonight. I know what I'd ask for. This ask whatever you want motif was popular thousands of years ago and it's still popular today. It can be found in lots of movies, okay? Different versions of it. There's Aladdin and the Genie, right? Three wishes. There's Bruce Almighty who has the powers of God and can wish what, almost whatever he wants. That we go back several more years, the middle of the century, we've got It's a Wonderful Life. Um, and then perhaps my favorite wish motif uh, movie, 13 going on 30. Okay. If you had one wish, what would you ask for? And you can't ask for more wishes because you know that's cheating. Okay. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, a thousand years ago, the great Catholic saint and theologian, Jesus spoke to him through a crucifix while receiving communion alone. And in this holy moment, the God of the universe asks him, what would you have as your reward? And I will tell you what Aquinas says at the end of the sermon. Uh, this way of storytelling lets us in on something because whatever they wish for, it tells us about their character. In all of these wishful stories and movies, the ultimate moral is always something like, one should wish for nothing and either be happy with one's lot or strive to improve it oneself. That relying on wishes from supernatural benefactors is a dangerous and unreliable game after all. Think about all the movies with this. The story always plays out this way. All the stories, all the movies about granting wishes, the moral is always your life now is better than what you're gonna wish for. What does Solomon ask for? Verse eight, your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. Solomon asks for a discerning heart. The Hebrew word here is shama, okay? A heart that listens, a, a heart with skill to listen, a hearing heart, an obedient mind, a virtuous listening heart. That's what he asked for. Solomon could have asked for anything in the world, but he asks for a heart that listens, that reveals his heart, that reveals Solomon's character. Solomon's a better person than you and I, right? Now, what is God's response to Solomon's request? Verse 10, the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor there will ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime, you will have no equal among kings. Solomon not only gets the listening heart that he asked for, but he gets wisdom, wealth, fame, and honor. Bonus, okay? 
And then the very next story in 1 Kings 3, Solomon has an opportunity to demonstrate this wisdom, this hearing heart. And it's a famous story. You might be familiar with it. The story is about two prostitutes that go before the king and ask for a ruling in a court case. Okay? Now, first of all, the fact that Solomon hears this case is amazing. Okay? He's the king. He did not overlook the request of two of the most disreputable and marginalized in society. He heard their quest for justice. So these two women live in the same house and they both have babies, okay? During the night, one of the babies dies, okay? Infant mortality was extremely high 3,000 years ago. So then the mother switches her dead baby with the other woman's living baby in the middle of the night. The next morning, the woman wakes up to her dead child, but the baby looks different. She must have swapped the babies. The other woman interjects and says to the king, no, her child is the one who's dead. Mine is the one who's alive. She's lying. Both women claim that the living child is rightfully theirs, but there's no DNA. There's nothing distinguishable to solve this case. What does the wise King Solomon do? Verse 24, then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby. Do not kill him. But the other said, neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling, give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is the mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. King Solomon's hearing heart heard the cry for justice by the baby's mother. He's off to a good start. And verse 28 tells us that the legend of Solomon and his wisdom spreads throughout Israel. But it doesn't stop there. No, no, no. The legend of King Solomon spread throughout the ancient world. Here are some of the accomplishments of King Solomon. Okay, now I'm using air quotes for a reason that will be known a little bit later on. 1 Kings 4, verse 21. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms of the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all of his life. Verse 26, Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. Verse 30, Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite. Wait, he's wiser than Ethan the Ezraite? Okay, he's wiser than He-Man, uh, Kalkol, Darda, and the sons of Mahol. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. 1,005? Then uh, chapter 6, verse 38, the temple was finished. He had spent seven years building it. He built Solomon's temple, the temple of the Lord, a house for God, that God may dwell among his people. And he dedicates it to God. And Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8 is astounding. I encourage you to read it this week. What a model of prayer and humility as he dedicates this to God. And God appears to Solomon, reestablishes his covenant with King Solomon. 
the praise for this king. David's son continues. Look at chapter 10, verse 21. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were in pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. Okay, well, thank you for the clarification. Gold cups, gold bowls, golden toilets, it's all gold, okay? We have an actual photo of King Solomon and his golden splendor from 3,000 years ago, okay? This is, of course, Goldmember from the Austin Powers movies. Look at verse 22. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years it returned carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes, and baboons. He had a boat of baboons, okay? Why? Because he can, okay? Verse 23, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all of the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. Why Egypt? Why does the author specify that? Hold on, you're going to find out soon. Verse 29, they imported chariots, they exported chariots to surrounding nations. Chariots and horses are weapons in the ancient world. They're the guns and the tanks. Okay, and Solomon is importing and exporting them. Importing it from Egypt and then exporting them all over. What do we call someone who imports and exports weapons? An arms dealer. What's going on here? Okay, why does the author go on and on about the greatness of Solomon? He was rich, he was wise, he was powerful. What's not to like? See, that, that's the problem, okay? We see all of these accomplishments and we're blinded by all of these shiny things. Uh, we miss the absolute bombs that are being dropped throughout this narrative by the author. Uh, the truth is that at first blush, Solomon is a great and wise king and is remembered as such. That's just not the whole story, okay? There are these subtle, tiny nuclear bombs planted throughout the story that show that things are not all right, okay? For one, the temple, okay? Solomon's crowning achievement, which took him seven years to build. But the very next sentence is this in 1 Kings 7. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. How long did it take him to build the temple, God's house? Seven years. How long did it take him to build his own house? Nearly twice as long. Something is off. And building projects were a national affair, okay? There were no tractors or supply trucks. And the author tells us that Solomon used slave labor to construct the temple. Okay, you remember the Exodus that we went through in the, in the very beginning of this sermon? Okay, Israel, they were slaves in Egypt. And Yahweh, which means the God who saves, the God who liberates, he frees them from Egyptian slavery. And now King Solomon is using slaves to build something to honor the God who frees slaves. Something is off. Solomon married the daughter of Pharaoh. And the author mentions this five times. Pharaoh took princesses. He didn't give them away. The storyteller is painting a picture of Solomon 
as the new Pharaoh. The slaves have now become the slave masters. Something is off. And finally, here's why these were bombs being dropped to the original audience. They knew the law. Uh, they knew the rules that God had put in place for kings. And it wasn't a lot of rules, but they're found in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, it says this, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around. The king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray and he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Silver, silver, schmilver, okay? It's all about gold. We already saw that earlier. Okay, Solomon is breaking every rule that God says not to break. Nuh-uh, not the wife's one. You only mentioned the one wife, Pharaoh's daughter. Okay, well, you're right. I almost forgot. 1 Kings 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. Smartest guy in the world, he gets married a thousand times. The sad fact is that our greatest enemy is most often ourselves. Our most painful wounds are self-inflicted. He fell. Not once did Solomon ever face a significant foe on the battlefield, but he lost his biggest battle, the one with himself. How did this happen? There is another force in life besides wisdom. Wisdom is wonderful, but there's another force, and if you let it, it will eat wisdom for breakfast. You can think of them as two paths. One path is wisdom, and the other is desire. And we can follow either path. We can order our lives with wisdom, or we can order our lives with desire. And desire is a good thing. We need desire to eat, to breathe, to be in community, to be in love. But desire is dangerous if it is not tamed. It can take over a life. Desire by its nature is obsessive. When we desire something, we think, well, I must have it. Nothing can get in the way of it. And so often we confuse desire with love. Anybody remember the famous Oscar Mayer jingle? Okay. Oh, I'd love to be an Oscar Mayer wiener. That is what I truly like to be. Cause if I were an Oscar Mayer wiener, everyone would be in love with me. Really? If you were an Oscar Mayer wiener, everyone would be in love with you. Okay? What a dumb jingle. Okay? The truth is, if you were a hot dog, even if you were a very good hot dog, everyone would not be in love with you. 
they would want to devour you. Because if someone loves you, they don't put you on a grill and burn you, or cut you in a slit from head to toe, put you in a bun, smear you with mustard, and then devour you. That is not love. That's desire. Desire asks, what do I want? If you desire sexual gratification, desire never asks, well, how would this affect my spouse? What impact would it have on my family and my children? How does this affect my conscience? What does this do to my relationship with God? Desire doesn't ask those questions. Wisdom does. Desire simplifies everything. It narrows your thinking. It shuts out all kinds of thoughts that might get in the way of acquiring what you desire. Doesn't matter how smart or how good you are. Desire doesn't care. Ask Solomon. You can design your life around desire, but it will burn you up. Or you can design your life around wisdom. Wisdom asks the question, what is good here? Desire always narrows your thinking. Wisdom broadens it. James 1.5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. God is not stingy with wisdom, but you've got to ask. Wisdom can put up with unfulfilled desire because it knows that it won't actually kill you. Is your life marked by wisdom or by desire? See, Solomon started out on a path of wisdom, but he gave in to desire. And in the end, Solomon was not the king that Israel was hoping for. But someday, after King Solomon, there would be another king. One of the most remarkable titles that Jesus ever gave himself was in Matthew chapter 12. He says, one who is greater than Solomon is coming. See, Solomon had great wealth, great power, great influence. Israel had more territory than they knew what to do with under King Solomon. But one who is greater than Solomon is coming. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in addressing worry and anxiety, Jesus pointed to the lilies of the field. He says they don't work. They do nothing but receive light. And yet, not even Solomon in all of his splendor is dressed as one of these. Sometimes I will pick up a flower from the field. If I'm on a walk or if I'm on a run and just stare at it and the majesty of it, the beauty of it. And Jesus says, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed as beautiful as one of these. First Kings 11.7 says this. It says that on the hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh. This is near the end of his life. This hill east of Jerusalem this altar to a false god where terrible things happened. And that hill, east of Jerusalem, well, that's the Mount of Olives. And 900 years later, a king in the line of David, Jesus is praying the night before his crucifixion for the strength to do his father's will. And Jesus doesn't just start strong, he finished strong. Jesus is the king 
that the people of God had been waiting for. Now let's go back to that wish motif. What would you wish for? A wish tells your values. A wish tells your fears. A wish is a dream for your soul. And out of the crucifix, Thomas Aquinas hears the voice of God commending his service and he asks him, what would you have as your reward? Thomas said, non nisite domine, non nisite. Nothing but you, Lord. Nothing but you. What is your wish? It reveals your soul. Jesus is our king. God, forgive us for the ways in which we think that if we had more, that we'd be happy. God, open up our eyes to the happiness around us. Open our eyes to the abundance of life. God, may we not worry, but may we see the flowers of the field and be reminded that not even Solomon, dressed in all of his splendor, was as beautiful as one of those. God, that you care for them even though they don't work, and you care for us. So Jesus, change us. Move us towards a life of wisdom, not the ways of the flesh in the way of desire. We need you. We love you. Let us follow you, the true king. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next week, we continue week two, and we're going to look at the prophet Elijah, and we can't wait. We hope you have an amazing week. Grace and peace in Ukraine.